Hello again, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. Um, Today we're jumping back into the world of philosophy. And as I mentioned in the episode before last, we're going to be doing uh, John Locke. I decided as I was looking at this that I actually need to do two episodes with John Locke because there are two sections of his philosophy that are extremely important to philosophy that comes after. Um, Part of his philosophy that becomes very influential is his political philosophy. The other part of his philosophy that becomes very influential is his uh, epistemology. And I'm going to start with his political philosophy, mainly because this is an area where he uh, somewhat stays on track with Descartes, uses a little bit of Descartes' method. Um, And the epistemology is going to be the opposite, where he sort of rejects Descartes' method and goes in a different direction. So I'm going to stick with the one first um, that, that stays closer to Descartes. Um, But to get into talking about this, I have to sort of talk about the political philosophy that was sort of the opposite end of the spectrum, which was also somewhat inspired by Descartes. Um, uh, The other uh, philosopher I need to talk about is Thomas Hobbes. Now, I've mentioned Hobbes a couple of times here and there with his Leviathan, but I want to get into a little more of uh, Hobbes' political theory, and then I want to contrast that with what Locke came up with. Now, Hobbes and Locke both um, want to start with a very basic truth. They want to start with the most basic truth that they can found their um, philosophy of uh, political, uh, their political philosophy on, I apologize. Um, And so they're doing similar to what Descartes did when he had his uh, cogito ergo sum. I think, therefore, I am. Descartes wanted to start with his most basic thought that he couldn't doubt or that couldn't be doubted and then move up from there to build his system. So Hobbes and Locke both do this. The funny thing is they start in the same place and then they, at one point, completely make different uh, uh, evaluations of the way things should go. Uh, Hobbes leans towards uh, authoritarian government. Locke leans towards representative government. But let's go ahead and talk about those first and uh, get a little bit of a sense of each of the philosophers. So with Hobbes, he starts out with the most basic thing that really is not going to be contested uh, when you're looking at political theory. And Hobbes is sort of someone who is trying for the first time, really, uh, in in uh, Western philosophy, aside from Plato's Republic, to really systematize um, a political system. Uh, most of what we had with political systems, they were added to here and there. Um, Hobbes wanted to be the first one to sort of make this a foundational system something based on a solid foundation and viewed as a whole system. A lot of what was uh, had for political philosophy was sort of arguing about uh, the merits and demerits of the philosophies and of the institutions that were already there. So Hobbes starts out with his most basic premise that uh, humans tend to hate pain and Uh, seek pleasure. So they'll do anything they can to avoid pain. 
This is one of the drives of human beings. If something causes us pain, we try to move away from it. We try to avoid it. If something causes pleasure, uh, we tend to move towards that. So he sees this as one of the most basic human drives in all human beings. Um, and what we experience as pain, humans will generally think of as bad. What we experience as pleasure, uh, humans will think of as good. Now, pleasure doesn't necessarily mean uh, sexual pleasure. Pleasure means things like having enough to eat, um, having a warm home, uh, you know, being comfortable, being feeling secure. These are all pleasures. So when you think of pleasures, don't just think about, you know, physical pleasures of, you know, sexual nature. Uh, he had more in mind pleasure in general. Pleasure is in uh, things that we enjoy, uh, foods, shelter, comfort, stability. So he divides human behavior into this kind of dichotomy where we're fighting back and forth between these, trying to avoid the one and get to the other. And he said that people will always go towards uh, seeking their own satisfaction um, and that they will rationally calculate how they can avoid the one and get to the other. So this creates what he sees as a relentless quest for power. Um, power is having the ability to get what you want uh, every time. And the more you can get what you want, the happier you are. So humans are sort of on this um, uh, course, according to Hobbes, that they're trying to maximize their power. They're trying to maximize their pleasure, maximize their freedom. Well, what this does is it creates a state of instability. Because as everyone is fighting for their own uh, pleasures and trying to avoid the pains, um, they're coming in conflict with each other. So Hobbes very much saw nature as the state of, or of the, what he called the state of nature, uh, what humans had before organized government, was sort of this state where it was a war of everyone against everyone else. Um, and everyone was only out to satisfy their selfish needs. Um, <clears throat> and this created a constant sense of instability. Uh, this created constant uh, pain, even though everyone was pursuing their pleasures. Uh, since these pleasures conflicted with each other, it was causing the opposite. Um, people were locked in a constant battle of trying to dominate others while not being dominated by others. And so this is an all-out state of war, is the way that Hobbes viewed this, and very chaotic. And one of the things that um, this leads to in Hobbes's philosophy is the idea that there has to be something that stops this. There has to be something that is above all of this that can put a stop to it and make everyone work towards the good of all. And for Hobbes, this solution was an absolute ruler. Uh, this absolute ruler, uh, the Leviathan is what he refers to it in the book, is someone that can't be questioned. Um, their authority is absolute in every single area. Hobbes saw the way to uh, a better society, to an organized society, was to have a society where there were no personal freedoms, where all of the decisions were made from the top. 
Um, and he argues for this because he says if you let even small freedoms uh, exist, what ends up happening is people will try to keep expanding those freedoms until we get to a state where we're at war with everyone else again. So he saw the uh, necessary evil of this all-powerful government that would have control over every element of your life. It would have control over what you ate, uh, what you could say, what you couldn't say, what your religious beliefs were. Um, and he saw this was the only way that we could avoid the state of nature, which he saw as being a period that was um, incredibly brutal. You know, he saw life under the state of nature as being brutal, um, selfish, and very short-lived, uh, and full of instability. So Hobbes is very much uh, a fan of the authoritarian ruler, the authoritarian state. He sees the idea as freedom, of freedoms for the people on the bottom as something being a poison to the state, something that will eventually cause the whole thing to collapse. So in order to have security, to have freedom, uh, we basically have to give up all of our freedoms. Uh, the, the only way to have security is to surrender all of your freedoms to the ruler. Now this is something that uh, a lot of governments have tried to seize on when they want to be authoritarian governments. They kind of make the claims that, you know, unless we tell the people everything to do, they're going to be more unhappy in the long run. And this becomes a sort of a argument for authoritarianism, the argument that's been used pretty much by every authoritarian regime. Uh, the idea that the only thing that can hold society together is someone who holds everyone under an iron fist. Now Locke comes along and starts the same way, um, but Locke is sort of dealing with a lot of turmoil in British society. Uh, he's living through the 1600s, so he's in the era of, uh, you know, when Cromwell takes over and overthrows the monarchy. And then Cromwell gets overthrown when he dies, his son does, um, by Charles II, who's a pretty decent ruler and sort of restores the uh, monarchy, the divine right of kings, the divine bloodlines. Um, he is then replaced by James II. And James II is a ruler who is much less popular, and for quite a few reasons. Uh, one of the things is that James II is Catholic, and by this time, England is pretty much mostly converted to Protestantism. And so they see a problem with having him as king, even though he's the king by birthright, um, he, doesn't, he isn't in line with the values of the country anymore. He isn't in line with the values of the nation. And also he tends to be uh, someone who wants to restore the monarchy and kind of push down uh, the rising uh, tide of the capitalists, of the new middle class. He wants to restore things to the way they were under the strict aristocracy. One of the problems with this is that these are now the people that have most of the money and most of the political power. Uh, by this time, the merchants were far wealthier than a lot of the aristocracy. And so they decide to remove James II, and they use the parliament to remove him. Now, uh, the parliament had been set up much earlier and was sort of a way of balancing the throne 
with the rule of the people. And it was seen as kind of a compromise in between. It wasn't giving up the monarchy completely and letting people have self-rule, but it was also setting limits on what the monarchy can do. So as James II is deposed, uh, they put William of Orange, uh, who's not even English. He's from another country. And so he isn't someone who, by blood, uh, has a right to be on the throne. Uh, he's someone who is on the throne because the parliament decided to put them there, uh, put him there. So one of the things that uh, Locke, who's alive and writing political theory and part of what is known as the Whig Party in England, uh, who are the people who are in favor of uh, the parliament, but also in favor of the monarchy, is he starts to write things that are... Um, supportive of a more constitutional monarchy, a monarchy where the power doesn't come from bloodlines, it doesn't come from the divine right of kings, it comes from the will of the people. And so Locke uh, is, is not writing about, you know, a 100% democratic system and, and writing for that, but he, his writings are aiming towards that, towards a system where the will of the people is taken into account. Now, like Hobbes, he starts the exact same way. He looks at, um, you know, what is the simplest idea that can't be really disputed, where everyone is going to buy into this idea about the way people are so that he can start to build his foundation. And he comes to the same simple idea that Hobbes did, that humans sort of want to stay away from the bad and want to move towards the good. We want to avoid pain and gravitate towards pleasure. And for him, again, this is not, you know, sensual pleasures. This is pleasure like, you know, having stability, having property, having freedoms, having, uh, you know, basic comforts and needs taken care of, having some luxuries, uh, avoiding things, you know, the pains are, you know, avoiding starvation, avoiding being uh, trampled upon, avoiding being, you know, killed because everybody's killing everyone else. So he starts out with the exact same way that Hobbes did. He starts out with this idea of, okay, this is the most basic thing that we can say about human beings. And he has a little bit of a difference to start out. He, he believes that each human being has a right to sort of define what is their own good life. Um, and so you have more of a sense of freedom of the individual than you do with Hobbes. Uh, Hobbes sees freedom of the individual as something completely uh, abhorrent from the beginning. Um, Hobbes believed that people calculate for their best interest. So did Locke. Locke also said that everyone will calculate for their best interest. But Locke saw this as something that could be a more enlightened process. Where Hobbes saw everyone is going to try to take everything from everyone else, Locke saw the world very differently. He saw the world as much more being, having a social uh, aspect of, of us being more social creatures than what Hobbes saw. Hobbes saw us as only individuals out for ourselves. Locke sees us as uh, when we have enlightened uh, awareness of what our wants and needs are, um, part of that enlightenment is that we see this depends on other people. This depends on other people getting what they want as well. 
You know, if I want to live in a big house and have food and all of these things, if, if it's all for me, I have to do all of this stuff myself. Uh, but we don't live like that. We live in communities. And so somebody builds the house, somebody grows the food, somebody butchers the food, somebody makes the clothes. And these people are all seeking their own happiness as well. So one of the things that Locke starts to talk about is this state of nature. Originally, he also uses the state of nature before there were governments, wasn't brutal like what Hobbes saw it to be. Uh, in fact, he saw it as much more small groups working together and cooperating. Now, he does see some flaws in the original state of nature. He doesn't see it as a perfect place either. You know, Hobbes saw it as brutal and horrible and something we'd never want to go back to. Locke sees it as something where it's pretty good, but we start to run into limitations. And one of the limitations that you start to run into is that um, you have people who uh, are most, most people are good, but you have a small percentage of people who are always going to be criminals. Uh, they're always going to be... Uh, you know, taking what doesn't belong to them because they're going to calculate it in their mind that, well, I can just take away from everyone else. Um, they're not going to calculate with the best interests of other people in mind. And this is really something that you see. And, and Locke saw this as something that is part of human nature, but not something that is the overwhelming majority of human nature. He saw this as something that is present in a small number of people. He also saw that there would be differences of opinion, uh, opinion about, you know, uh, what kinds of things should be done, what kinds of things shouldn't be done. If everyone completely has their own way, the more society advances, uh, the more those start to come into conflict with each other. So he starts to see these lacks in the state of nature, and this is where government comes in. Now, for government, for Hobbes, it was to make sure we don't descend into chaos so that we can have security. For Locke, the only point of government is to make sure we expand the freedoms that we couldn't have under the state of nature. So for Locke, we're always trying to get more and more freedom. Uh, and getting more freedom means compromise. You know, if I want to be stable in my home, I have to make sure my neighbors are stable in their home. You know, if I don't want people constantly robbing me because they're starving, I, I need to make sure that people have enough food to eat as well. So there are trade-offs and compromises. You can't have everything you want, but you can have more of the freedoms if you are living in a state where people are compromising, where people are looking out for each other's interests. Um, you know, think of it this way. If I want to uh, carry a heavy object, um, it's very difficult for me to carry a heavy object on my own. But if I can get four or five, six, seven, eight people to help me carry that object, then it becomes much easier. So Locke's idea of society is that it's much more cooperative, that we're much more social beings. Um, and so the government that he sees as being a better government is one that's very limited. He sees that a government should only be there in order to help us uh, sort of work together better 
and to be more free. And whenever government isn't uh, increasing our freedoms, uh, he sees that's not the legitimate place of government. This is something that is very revolutionary in his time period, because before this, governments were seen as, well, the person in charge is either there because they're there by force, or they're there by the will of God or the gods. So there was this sort of idea that um, the legitimacy of government either came from force or came from some divine source. Uh, Locke doesn't, doesn't buy into that at all. For Locke, the legitimate source of government is the consent of those being governed. So you start to get more of an idea of representative government. And Locke is really one of the big inspirations for the founding fathers of the United States. This idea of limited government, this idea of sort of separation of powers to keep any one power from becoming too much. Uh, the idea that government, um, you know, shouldn't have complete control over our lives. Uh, the idea that uh, we should have freedom of religion, um, because one of the things that Hobbes, or I'm sorry, that Locke lived through were, was the religious turmoil in England of the 1600s, where you'd have the Catholics and the Protestants trading who was the most powerful, and then basically who, whoever was on top was persecuting the other, the other side. So Locke really kind of brings out this crazy idea of, you know, religious freedom. People should be allowed to believe and worship as they see fit, um, which is very revolutionary. You know, all of these ideas of how was a government legitimate, uh, how is the power distributed, uh, and religious tolerance are sort of very new to uh, England in particular and to most of Europe, uh, because up and through this point, basically there was either one religion that decided everything or there were two competing religions that fought back and forth. Now, Locke does sort of make one exception to this idea of tolerance. Uh, he doesn't believe atheists should be allowed to uh, exist. Uh, he believes atheists will bring down the society. So while he's much more uh, forward than a lot of the people, uh, he still has that one prohibition that, well, we don't really care how you worship God or what church you go to as long as you worship God and you're not an atheist. But this is a huge step forward in tolerance. And this is something that is a huge step forward uh, and serves to be a big uh, factor when the people who are putting together the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution of the United States are putting that together. They're very much using Locke's ideas. You know, the ideas of limited government. Government should be big enough to do what it has to do to organize, to help keep things orderly, to help keep things organized, but not so large that it takes away everyone's freedom. Uh, and this is one of the uh, debates that we still have, and both sides, Republican and Democrat, are basing their ideas on this idea from Locke. Um, they're just going at it from different perspectives. Uh, you know, the Republicans generally want deregulation of business uh, to remove the taxes from uh, people, especially business. Uh, the Democrats are usually of the idea of this is 
something where government needs to be an equalizer. You know, big business benefits from things like having employees that have had an education, you know, gone to schools. Uh, so this is where taxes are used. Uh, big business benefits from having roads and railroads and uh, shipyards to ship their boats so that this is not an overreach. This is something that is giving them what they need. And this debate goes back and forth. You know, what exactly is a government that is too big? Uh, where should government be able to step in? Where should they stay out of it? Uh, this is all very much traced back to John Locke. Now, this is one of the reasons that I wanted to kind of go into this element of Locke as well and not just talk about his epistemology. Now, his epistemology also has a lot of importance later on in the, in the field of uh, politics and political theory, but it has a lot more uh, influence in the development of sciences uh, and the development of different arguments within philosophy. So Locke is one of those people that is not just important in one area. And in the next philosophy lecture, we're going to talk about his epistemology. And his epistemology is basically uh, taken out of a book called an easy, I'm sorry, an essay concerning human understanding. Um, this essay con concerning human understanding would be an essay that would make most, you know, college students faint because it's about 600 pages. Uh, and if you told students to write a 600-page essay, they would definitely faint. Um, but it is uh, sort of his idea of his epistemology and sort of the rejection of the uh, idea of Descartes of certainty. But we'll go into that in the next philosophy episode. I hope all of you are staying safe, and I hope all of you are doing well. And we'll talk to you all again soon.